So this morning is going to be the last installment of uh, the first section of what's going to turn out to be a long-term sermon series that I've called The Tapestry. And the the goal of this sermon series, it feels uh, uh, maybe a little bit, I'm a little too big for my britches in this, but it's to preach through the narrative portions of Scripture, but not all at once. We'll break it into chunks. The goal of that that, that, uh, sermon series through these these, uh, narrative portions is to track what is the thread of God's redemption through human history. Later this fall, we're going to look a little bit more through, you know, the patriarchs and matriarchs, Abraham, Sarah, and and their descendants. Um, But right now, we're we're closing out with the flood story. And the reason that I called this series the tapestry is because when we read the Bible, we come face to face with the good, the bad, and the ugly of history, even as it's recorded in the Bible. And in the midst of that, God is weaving a story for us. If you think about it like a a woven rug, the front facing finished product of that rug is going to be a beautiful array of colors and shapes. But if you flip that over, you see a mess, right? There's threads all over the place, you know, fused together to to bring, you know, colors, different color strands together. You're going to have lines that go all over the back so that, you, you know, as you, you weave this, it, it, it's not what you want facing the front, but it's part of what comes together to make this beautiful tapestry that we see. In many ways, our lives are like the back of a tapestry. There's disorder, they're jumbled, it's not reflective of the finished product because there's sin, dysfunction, conflict, you name it. But what God does in our lives and what we see through the scriptures is he takes all of these discordant parts and brings them together to weave his beautiful story of the gospel. Now today we're looking at the second half of the flood narrative which began in Genesis 6. So if you want to pull out your Bibles, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 9. And we're going to look at a few items. There's, there's three primary themes or sections that we're going to look at. First, we're going to see a little bit of the after effects of the flood some, some words of encouragement that God gives to Noah and his family. Secondly, we'll see God's covenant with Noah and the family. And finally, there's some family drama that shows that although judgment has come, evil has not been eradicated from the world. And keep that Bible open, because again, I'm going to read those in three separate chunks. So follow along. I'm going to read Genesis 9, 1 through 7 to start. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything." But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. So just to kind of catch you up to speed, if you weren't here last week, you probably heard, if you've spent any time in the church, the the flood story, right? The 
by the start of this chapter, the, you know, the, the ark has been built, the flood, the animals have taken shelter in it, the floods come and abated, and Noah and his family have disembarked from the church, from the church, not in the church, the ark, excuse me, and the ship is what I meant to say, and they've offered sacrifice to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, the text says at the end of verse 8. And what we see in the first four verses here in chapter 9 is a restatement of the creation mandate that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. Now, remember last week I said that there was a lot of parallel imagery, symbolism between the creation of Genesis 1 and kind of this decreation and recreation of Genesis 9. And so let me, let me read this command for you what we see in Genesis chapter 1. So keep your eyes open for what what I'm about to read, how it's different from the first four verses that I just read. There's two specific divergences. So Genesis 1, 28 to 30. Right, this is after creation. And God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that is the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Now as I read that, you may have pretty quickly pulled up on some of the not-so-subtle differences. And the first is, is that in the first iteration of God's delivery, he gives authority to Adam and Eve over all the creatures of the earth. They're to have dominion over those animals. But as we talked about several weeks ago when we looked at that passage, that authority was to be understood as representative of the rule and reign of God. Mankind's leadership was to be for the benefit and flourishing of all of the earth and the creatures within. Now here in Genesis, or excuse me, in chapter one, it was a positive statement. But here... By the time we get to chapter 9, that's changed to the negative. Humans aren't just reigning over the created order as benevolent kings and queens, or vice regents, if you will, for God. But instead of positively wielding their authority, they still maintain superiority over the created order, but it is by fear now that they are ruling. Now, the second major difference that we see is in chapter 1 or from chapter 1, excuse me, is that God gives Adam and Eve, humanity, the plants of the earth to be their food. There's no specific mention of humans eating animals until here in chapter 9. For the first time explicitly, animals are given to humans to be their food, just with the caveat that they're not to consume the blood. Now, I don't think it's too much of an interpretive jump to assume that the first humans, based off of what we see and don't see in chapter 1, is that the first humans were intended to be vegetarians. But the creation seems to be kind of cycling away from the original intention of God's created order. We see fear replacing harmony. We see predators replacing what should be allies. And I think this points to the theological reality that our sin has consequences beyond just ourselves. When people talk about, you know, sin, it's like, well, nobody was hurt. Well, even if that might seem to be true in our perception, I think passages like this and elsewhere in Scripture point to the very creation is often marred, corrupted by our sin. 
This fits what we see Paul write in Romans 8, 19 to 21. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, those are the two major differences we see in this. And if we take where that last one ended with, you know, now God is giving the animals to humans to eat, but just don't eat of the blood, and and we take that kind of logical conclusion to the next step in verses 5 and 6, apply that to humans, right? That the shedding of human blood has consequences, both to animals and to humanity. Verse 6 breaks into poetry, highlighting that the one who sheds the blood of another human will have his or her blood shed by man because they violated what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, these verses have often been used in support of the death penalty. I don't want to spend too much time on this particular passage, but I want to just note that the, the complexity of ensuring justice in a modern society means that when we approach verses, passages like this, I think we need to tread very, very carefully. Because what we see this passage do is highlight a proportionate response for sin. Think later in the law where they talk about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's proportional. While God does grant the opportunity for vengeance here, this passage does not specify that it should be the responsibility of the state for example, to be the arm of that justice. I mean, all, all who were living at this time when it was given was Noah and his family. Like, there, there wasn't a state. Let's just be clear about that. Right? Later in the law, we see that state-sanctioned corporate punishment for various crimes is allowable in the law. But if we have a, a proper understanding of the exegesis of those texts and the, the place of the law, right? Those laws were for the chosen people of Israel, God's people living in that nation state of Israel, right? We don't stone people for working on the Sabbath or for infidelity any more than we don't continue to observe the ban on wearing, poly- I'm sure this is a polyester blend shirt. I'm sure this is not cotton because it is soft as anything, right? We still eat bacon, The law forbids those things, but we do it because we recognize, and again, this is a sermon in and of itself, that there are certain elements of the law that continue to apply and some that have been dealt with, uh, whether because Israel doesn't exist as a nation state as God's chosen people like it did in the Old Testament, or because Jesus came and fulfilled the, the ceremonial elements of the law. So I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't support capital punishment, but I think that it's a a leap to use this particular verse as a proof text to get there. All I'm saying is we ought to be really careful to ensure that we are allowing the Bible to speak for itself and not use it for its its own purpose, or excuse me, and not use it for our own purposes, which I'm going to address a little bit later. All right, let's go back to the text. Let's look at the second theme. Genesis 9, 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you, between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember my everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, this is the first time that we see this language of covenant in the Bible explicitly. A covenant was a, a really formalized agreement between two parties. In a few months, I alluded to the fact that we're going to be looking at Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs and matriarchs, uh, and, and there's a, a really significant covenant that is formed between Abraham and God. Um, Abraham is tasked with splitting the animals, these, these animals in half, and the blood that comes from them runs in an aisle towards the altar. Again, I'm going I'm to get into a little bit more of the historical context when we get to that story, but what's communicated is, in this covenant, is if I violate the terms of this agreement, let what happened to me, or excuse me, let what happened to those animals happen to me. Basically, if I prove to be disobedient, my life is forfeit. That's how the Old Testament often understood this language of covenant. Here what we see, the covenant that God is making, is that he will never again use a flood to destroy the earth. Now, as a child, I was a little bit of a, I wouldn't say spiteful, but I, um, I, I don't know, I like to, to ask questions that people didn't like to answer, because I would say, like, well, what good does that really do? Right? Because there's so many other ways that God could still wipe us out. Right? You've got earthquakes, you've got droughts, you know, like, Thank goodness Bruce Willis is alive because he could send a, a, a giant asteroid, you know, to, to destroy us. Like, there's all kinds of other avenues. He's not really limiting his options. But, you know, the, the, the intent behind the passage, especially, you know, places like Pittsburgh, we've had a very dry summer, but normally it's real gray and rainy here a lot of the year. Right? The, the, the goal of that is that when we, you know, while we might not have earthquakes, earthquakes or falling debris from the sky, God's covenant gives us hope right? that when it rains— it's not going to wipe us off the face of the earth. We'll, we'll preserve. One of the elements of these covenants is that there were these physical symbols that uh, came with those covenants, came with that reality. It was a sign of what happened. With Abraham's covenant with God, it was circumcision. With Israel, the sign was the Sabbath. Right? Christian marriage is based off of this idea of a covenant, and we have a sign of the covenant, the wedding ring. If I take my ring off my finger, I'm not like not married to Sarah anymore. It doesn't, it, it, but it's a visible, it's a public declaration of my covenant with Sarah. Now, in the account of Noah, the covenant was the rainbow. We see this in verse 12 and following. God's setting up his bow in the clouds. But the rainbow is not meant to be some sentimental symbol where we look at and we say, oh, that is, what a beautiful sight. Like, God, you're so good. Like, that, that might be true. You might have those feelings. But the original understanding is that this bow that was being hung in the clouds was God's warrior bow. Right? It was a, the fact that that bow was hung was, meant that it was a symbol of peace. I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones uh, tells this part in the Jesus Storybook Bible. 
She says this way. She says, And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, which we'll see glimmers of in a moment. But God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan, a plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not to his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointed down towards his people. It was pointing up to the heart of heaven. God was at peace with humanity, and when that anger against sin would come again, it wouldn't be against the world. But God would direct that anger and wrath upon Jesus who carried the weight of our sin and atonement when he died on the cross. If you haven't heard of the Jesus Storybook Bible, I mean, it's a beautiful, I mean, every adult should own one too. It's a, it's a children's Bible, but man, it, it's, it's beautiful. Like the tagline of it is where every story whispers his name, Jesus' name, through it, and it traces that. So that's the covenant that God makes with Abraham and the rest of humanity. Let's finish the chapter. Genesis 9, 18 to 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So Noah, who we saw last week as a beacon of righteousness, blameless before the Lord, uh, before the flood, shows that he's not actually perfect. Noah started a vineyard and seemingly took a bit too much liberty with his libations, and he gets drunk. Now, just to clarify, the Bible does not say that it is sinful to consume alcohol. You know, we see in the New Testament Jesus even participating in, in the cup of wine. But there are commands to not overindulge, to not get drunk, to not be addicted to things that prevent us from loving God, our neighbors, or ourselves well. And what we see happening here is Noah, as we saw, the deconstruction and reconstruction, recreation of the world. Noah is kind of like a second Adam. And even though the text does not explicitly pass moral judgment on his behavior, the structure shows that it's showing disapproval. It reveals that there is still wickedness in the world. And so Noah is, he's passed out, 
naked in his tent, and Ham spots his dad exposed and goes to his brothers. He humiliates, he dishonors his father. Now, we don't know what form this took. Maybe, you know, maybe he's just trying to gossip with his brothers. Maybe he's poking fun at their dad, you know, having a joke at his expense. The point is, Ham's Ham's behavior was frowned upon. And his brothers, you know, Shem and Japheth, they attempt to restore some dignity to Noah by walking backwards with this, you know, garment and recovering him. So that's what happens in the story. But I feel the need in preaching about this to spend some time talking about what comes next because it's a very famously used test or text. How many of you have heard of the curse of Ham? I don't see any hands. That's okay. You don't have to raise your hands. But I'm imagining some of you have probably heard of the curse of Ham. Ham's behavior is so egregious that Noah curses Ham so that he is burdened with being a servant to his brothers. Tradition suggests that Ham and his descendants migrated south to Africa. And this passage, this very passage, was used in pulpits as a justification for the transatlantic slave trade. Preachers defended the horrific and dehumanizing practice of chattel slavery in the Americas and Europe, using this as one of the primary passages to support it. What an abhorrent thing for the church to do, to have participated in, especially because this is not actually, if we just read with me, that's not actually what the scriptures say. I always want to give folks, I try to give folks the benefit of the doubt, but I have a hard time feeling that there was not some willful or or intentional distortion of the text to get to that conclusion from what I just read. Look at verse 25. When Noah expresses the curse, the recipient isn't even Ham. It's Canaan. There, restated in verse 27, it's Canaan who will be the the, uh, servant of Japheth. The text goes out of its way to express this relationship because when Ham is even first introduced in verse 18, he is described as the father of Canaan. And when Ham looks at the nakedness of his father, he's named Ham, the father of Canaan. There is no curse of Ham. There's only a curse of Canaan. The judgment here is not on Ham, but on his son Canaan. Now, that might seem unfair, and I don't have answers to why Canaan was the one cursed when Ham was the one who was the offender, but the text is very clear that it is Canaan that is the recipient of the punishment. Now, that's important, especially based off of where where our culture, European culture, takes this passage, or historically has. If you flip over to the next chapter, when describing the descendants of Noah, Look at Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 to 19. This is Canaan and his line. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And pay attention to some of these names. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergeshites, the Hiphites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites and the Zemurites and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerer as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah. Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the name of the Canaanite clans. These are the people that the text considers the judgment of Canaan falling upon. And we actually see this judgment completed in the book of Joshua during the conquest. And it's referenced in the book of the law, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7 1, when it says this. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you. 
pay attention, similar names. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. So right here in this region that was considered, it was called Canaan, but it's modern day Israel, are the same names of the descendants of Ham that we see referenced in Genesis chapter 10. These are the people that Noah says will be judged. Yes, some of Ham's descendants are believed to have settled in Africa. One of Ham's sons is named Egypt. You can probably guess where he settled. Another was Cush, who likely settled in kind of the region of Ethiopia. So there is much African heritage that comes from Ham, but not Canaan. Now, I know that hindsight is 20-20. What's crystal clear to us now may not have necessarily been the same for them hundreds of years ago. But this gross misuse of Scripture boggles my mind because I cannot wrap around my head how a minister of the Word gets it this wrong when there are so many holes in that interpretive framework. But I think it is an example of what I want to close with this morning, which, you know, it's easy for us to scoff at and criticize, rightfully so, to criticize folks who did that. But what I want us to take to heart is Are we approaching the Bible with the intent of bending ourselves to the Scriptures? Or are we attempting to bend the Word of God to fit our frameworks and our perspectives, the ways that we see the world? Too often, we try to find a Scripture passage, a verse, a story to kind of anoint, to justify whatever idea, whatever worldview we might carry with us. We want to live a certain way, and we want the Bible to kind of give its stamp of approval, to say, sure, go ahead, keep doing that way. And so as a result, we have tried to make the text submissive to our lives as opposed to the other way around. We ought to be submissive to the text. And friends, I think this is a serious offense because I would argue that this is actually a good demonstration of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, to violate that third commandment. Right? So often people try to think about it as using Christ like a cuss word, but I think it's far more sinister because it's equivalent with putting words into the mouth of God, which he never stated, with an attempt to fit our own agendas, oftentimes at the expense of others, especially the most vulnerable. There are reasonable disagreements over how to interpret the Bible. None of us knows with complete precision or accuracy what the Bible always means. And this is one of the the, the characteristics that we try to hold up here as a church is to respectfully disagree on the non-essentials to faith. We're rooted on the core, the essentials of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of God. But there's a whole lot of other places that we're express freedom to disagree. Because it's one thing to have disagreements and perhaps proof texts that support infant baptism versus adult baptism. Viewing the Lord's Supper as, you know, symbolizing the body and blood of Jesus versus the belief that those, the elements actually become the physical flesh and blood. Whether or not the rapture is going to happen We can disagree on those things because the right answer to those questions are important, 
but I'm willing to exhibit grace to someone who gets it from my perspective wrong, and they are willing to exhibit grace to me from their perspective who gets it wrong. But when it comes to issues that are far more weighty, that affect people, uh, I mean, in life and death, it's suffering, oppression, like justifying the enslavement of a race, that's a whole, we're in a whole other ballpark when we consider the use of Scripture in those types of situations. I mean, you could make the argument about, you know, baptism being a significant one because, goodness, 500 years ago, they were fighting wars. There, there was lots of bloodshed over which was the right way to, to baptize people. So again, I, I, not to say that that's not important, but again, are we, how, how staunchly are we holding on to some of these non-essential pieces of faith? And are we sure that we're reading the Bible as objective as possible? This is why I think James teaches that it encourages us to be slow when it comes to being teachers. Because it says, for those who teach will be held with greater strictness. Because those of us who lead and teach others the way of Jesus are responsible for their spiritual well-being. We influence others. And in some way, to kind of use some of that Old Testament language, like in the book of Ezekiel, when we lead people astray, like their blood is on our head in some way. Again, that's a, that's a little, sounds a little harsh, but that's the, the language of scriptures. And I would argue that doesn't just go for me as a pastor. That I try to, I, I, I try to be very cautious with getting up here and just kind of saying things willy-nilly and making these, you know, strong, sweeping statements, unless I feel, you know, have a real strong sense of conviction on them. But even just beyond me as a pastor, many of us teach and guide others in a variety of ways whether it be the way we parent our kids and teach our kids, our friends, coworkers. The, the, the um, metaphor I often give is that we should have in our Christian walk a hand reaching up and a hand reaching down. A hand reaching up of someone who's a little farther along pulling us along the way and a hand reaching down where we're doing the same. And so there's gonna be people in your lives, they may not even be Christians yet, you know, it could be a coworker that you're working to share the gospel with, but that's that some person that you're trying to pull along, bring along on that path of Jesus. We have a responsibility, and I'm not saying this to say, like, to give you, you know, to, to kind of paralyze you to be like, man, I can't say anything. But I think be sober-minded. You know, do your research. Ask good questions to, to make sure that you understand the text that we're using and not, not weaponizing it. It's irresponsible for us to go to the biblical text with the intention of confirming our own biases. And it's vile for us to use the scriptures as weapons to bludgeon those who we disagree with or seek to control them. And so my encouragement this morning is to go to the word of God often. Read it often. Join in our, you know, like daily Bible reading plan, reading a, a, a chapter a day to immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Many of us uh, actually, there are some studies, I, I'm, I'm going to botch this because I didn't prepare this, but I was listening to the Holy Post probably a month ago, and they did a, a survey, and it's like 70-some percent of evangelicals, so people who you would say in America are probably the most Bible-believing, actually had just some, some heretical beliefs. We're not talking about like, again, the essentials, but core doctrine heretical beliefs, because many of us are not shaped by actually reading the scriptures, but are shaped by, you know, whatever we hear on TV, you know, whatever kind of cultural norm is in. And, and so, again, I want to encourage us to read often, to study deeply 
and to pray and rely on the Spirit of God to guide us in his truth for how we can best love God and our neighbors with it. Now, as we think about this this week, I'm going to give you some touch points, some reflection questions on this passage. And the first is this. Let's look at the covenant, the sign of the covenant. Next time it rains, whether or not you see a rainbow, ponder. Use that as an opportunity, right? You know how every month we take communion and we use it to meditate, to kind of ruminate on the goodness of God through his sacrifice on the cross? Use a rainbow, use a rainstorm to think about that same thing, the goodness of God. Ponder the mercy of God that he does, often does not give us what we deserve because sin was not eradicated in the flood. So he would be totally justified, I guess not to, to wipe us out by a flood because he promised not to do that, but he'd be welcome to start over again. But he doesn't because he's a merciful God. Second, is there a particular passage that you have heard weaponized? Right? Is, there, is there a time where you've heard the scriptures in, in a way that, you know, just beat people over the head? And so instead of just, you know, because I, I remember growing up in certain s- settings where some of those types of passages were just kind of used. It became that Christianese, that language that you would just use. And it's so easy to just repeat it, right? Because it's, it sounds good. It's what you've said. But I think there's something really important about going back to the text, learning some of the literary, the historical context of the passage to better understand. Does it actually communicate what you have heard it communicates or not? Lastly is this. Meditate on Romans 8, 19 to 21. That's, I read that earlier in the, past, in the passage, in the, the message. How does your faith in Christ invites you to be a son or daughter of God to join in the restoration of the cosmos, right? Through humanity's sin, the, co- the, the creation has been subjected to futility, but the creation is waiting, longing for the sons and daughters of God, which is not going to be fully realized until Jesus comes back again, but we can participate, be that son or daughter of God to join in God's work of bringing restoration to the cosmos. Join me in prayer. Lord, you are a good God. We trust in your goodness that chases us down as we sang this morning. Lord, knowing that you love us deeply, that you guide us along the path that even when things get tough, that you don't abandon us. You stick closer to us than a brother, than a sister. So God, may we rely on your goodness as we entertain texts like this that teach of your covenant to not destroy us again by flood, to show mercy, your forbearance as Paul talks about in Romans, that there are many countless sins that you kind of, you're putting on hold. Right, you are holding back your final judgment so that more sons and daughters of God can come to the surface and know you. Lord, we pray that as we enter into this text, as we share this text with others, that we would and do so, not, not a, I can't think of the word I'm looking for, Lord, but you know what I'm trying to say, that we would do so sober-minded with the solemnness that is due this holy, holy text, your revelation to us, God that the authority that is carried within would, would stand fast with the scriptures and that we wouldn't try to, to piggyback off that authority for our own purposes. 
using the Bible to, to beat people into submission. God, illuminate the text for us by the power of your Holy Spirit who is at work in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.